Pastor said, you know, as we open the pages of a new year, I think we have to recognize with all honesty, we have no clue about tomorrow, do we? <laughs> Much less another year, and to say nothing about life from here on in general. There are times when we plan and prepare and set goals to go into a certain direction, but after a couple of months or even a year, we're, <laughs> we're not even near there. We're not even in the same way. Maybe our areas of finances, relationships, our health. And it seems that we just miss the mark. But there are times that we, we do make it. There are times that we've achieved. Some of you remember the TV show, The A-Team. Uh, Tim stepped out, but uh, what was uh, uh, Hannibal Smith's fond of saying? I love it when a plan comes together, you know? And so when we start a new year and all of a sudden that plan comes together, man, we pat ourselves on the back. We get an extra scoop of our favorite ice cream. We just go ahead and we go into social media and let everybody know that I've arrived. I've done it. I've made it. Yet how often our plans end up falling far short of our intended goals. I didn't get the job I wanted. Not able to go on vacation this year. Maybe my health hasn't worked out as I had hoped for. Many of the failures we'd blame on poor planning or setting unrealistic goals or maybe just being stupid or lazy. For me, getting ready for 2024, I did the smartest thing. I went to my Zodiac chart for guidance. You chuckle. Born under the sign of Aries, this is mine. Listen to this. Jupiter will grace the second house of Aries, promising a year of significant career growth and financial prosperity. I am set. In all honesty, though, kidding aside, the simple truth is, and we talked about this when we were going through the book of James, James chapter 4, he says, today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and gain. In other words, I'm going to set goals and plans. These are the things that I'm, I'm going for. Whereas ye know not what ye shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For he ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or do that. Those are hard things to put in, in practice and in thought. In our future, our plans ought to be understanding that we have no absolute control over tomorrow or for a year or for the rest of our life. Our understanding needs to be the absolute truth that God is sovereign in all things as God has presented unto us truth, whether it be a financial windfall, whether it's an illness, whether it's a new child in the family, whether it's an accident, cancer diagnosis. He has permitted it. He has allowed it. He has ordained it so he knows best. Those of you who know Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together 
for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. If, in reality, God is not sovereign over all things, although the things that we perceive as being tragic or failures or whatever, he's not sovereign of it all. He is nothing at all. Let's pray. Father, we open up a new year and are mindful that they're just days. They're just the rising of one sun and the setting of another setting of another day, a new calendar, a new week, a new month. And yet, in truth, it's by your grace that we're able to see such. As we come and approach your word, we're mindful, Father, of this being uh, our only faithful understanding of what truth is, uh, what we can rely upon, and how we are enabled to gauge our days, our steps. Uh, it enables us to see you and uh, understand our walk with you and our fellow man. So even today, as we do uh, in every Lord's Day and any time we approach your word, we pray for grace to understand those things that are set before us, now hide your servant, and may Christ be glorified in it all, in his name. Amen. We begin today with a series in the life of Joseph. To the best of my knowledge, there are 11 Josephs in the Bible. Uh, just finishing Christmas, we have the husband of Mary, but they are a little bit uh, more, more materials on them than others. Uh, this particular one has the most written, 13 chapters in the book of Genesis. And for some of you, this Joseph may be a mystery. That's fine. We're going to take our time as we go through his life and draw some aspects, some of the truths that we'll gain from him, uncovering them slowly, and trust they'll be beneficial to all and honoring to God. For others who might be more familiar with Joseph, I think you could truly say with me that the life he lived was not one that was on a path that he had chosen. Thinking of his future, thinking of his plans. The life that Joseph lived, that which we read about in the scripture, was not one that he had chosen. What he experienced, what he went through, what he saw, what he was involved in, generally was not in the direction that he sat down and says, this is the way I want to go. This is the path that I went to live. What he was involved in was not of his own planning. These situations, and this is what I want us to see, these situations that we read of in Joseph's life are evidences of the good providence of God in all things, in all areas. Situations that on certain occasions we would refer to as bad luck. Certain occasions we would say, well, that was poor planning. Certain occasions, well, that's somebody else's fault. Instead of understanding God's sovereign hand in it all, they were permitted contrary to what we would think. For example, for those of you who know something about Joseph's life, did he purposely act in some way to get his brothers irritated at him? In order that they would want to kill him? Was he sitting down one day and say, boy, I'm just going to poke and poke and poke until they hate me and want to kill me? Or how about getting thrown into prison? Or how about 
all of the events that occurs. Did he sit down and say, tomorrow or this next week or this next month or next year, I, I want to get tempted by this or I want to get put in such a position that I'll be in trouble. On the other far extreme, could we say that Joseph sat down one day understanding that he would one day become second in command in all of Egypt? This is the goal of my life. I'm going to go through all of this because I'm going to be next to Pharaoh, second in charge of this great nation, and I'm going to rescue them, and I'm going to rescue my family? No. It's ridiculous to think as such. There's a beautiful poem included in a work by English author and theologian and pastor, F.B. Meyer. Meyer was a contemporary and friend of D.L. Moody. The poem goes like this. Behind our life the weaver stands and works his wondrous will. We leave it all in his wise hands and trust his perfect skill. Should mystery enshroud his plan and our short sight be dim, we will not try the whole to scan, but leave each thread to him. The tapestry that is Joseph's life is a beautiful one from the pages of the scriptures all the way through in all of those 13 chapters. Yet it was one that Joseph had no hand in other than his obedience at what he came to understand was God's will. It was the master weaver all along. A bit of background to help us understand the scene that unfolds before us today and in the weeks ahead. Joseph was the 11th son of his father, Jacob. And later on, God gives Jacob the name, anybody know? Israel. Israel. So there'll be times when we get confused when we hear Israel and we think, is that the nation or is that the man? And sometimes I'll just refer to as Jacob, even though his name becomes Israel. He was also the firstborn son of Rachel, his wife. Jacob's past was a, <clears throat> a sordid one and one that was very difficult to follow along is why he did things the way he did, but it was all part of God's plan. But we'll take it up where he's finding himself working for Laban. Laban just happened to be his uncle, and he was caring for the flocks of Laban, and he just happened to fall in love with his daughter, Rachel. And this is a, uh, an ongoing picture of God's beautiful hand. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jacob had to work for Laban for how many years? Seven. Seven. We husbands recognize that we start out when we are married and we work for them for the rest of our days, but he. Come on, gentlemen. But he had to work for his wife, Rachel, for seven years. But the surprise came when at the time of the wedding night, and it's difficult to understand how this may have happened, although we can fill in the possibilities, her father decided to switch brides, and he puts in Leah, the older of the daughters, in the tent with Jacob. And all of a sudden he awakens to find, ah, oh, this isn't Rachel, ah, oh, it's Leah. So they go to to uh, her father, and they find out the, the trickery that had made, so he proposes to work another seven years for this wife. 
total working 14 years for two wives. Did Jacob plan this? <laughs> Did Jacob connive that he would uh, want to have two wives all along, have all these situations? Hardly. It was something that was probably giving him headaches all along, but this is what happened. These seeming missteps were nothing more than the understanding of what God providentially provided for the generations to come, for that which he had brought understandings to. So initially, Leah bears Jacob four sons. Rachel remains barren. But that's only four out of 12 children. Where did the others come from? Well, the daughters had uh, helpmates, handmaids. Zilpah was the handmaid for Leah. Bilhah was the handmaid for Rachel. Each of these gave additional sons to Jacob. Therefore, Leah later on bears two more sons and one daughter. So now there's a total of four wives with ten sons and one daughter. How about we're still missing here? And Rachel still has not borne children. So if you would, open your Bibles to Genesis 30. If you note in your bulletins, our scripture reading was Genesis 30 through 50. Well, we're not going to go all the way through there. But Genesis 30, and look at verses 22 through 24. <clears throat> Remember, this is the favorite wife of Jacob. And God remembered Rachel. It didn't mean that God forgot or ignored Rachel. This is still all part of his plan. But at this particular time, according to as it was written, all of a sudden now she is perceived as being not forgotten. God hearkened unto her to open her womb, and she conceived and she bare a son and said, God hath taken away my reproach. She had no reproach, but it was that which she perceived. And she called his name Joseph and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. Well, this other son is Benjamin. And he becomes the child that she uh, is taken home to be with the Lord. At Benjamin's birth, she dies. So the makeup of the family unit is necessary as we follow on through this life. Four wives, or in essence, two wives and two concubines, but in essence, four wives, with these children, Joseph is the 11th son of Jacob through four wives and the first son of Rachel. Now, skip over to Genesis 37. Genesis 37. <clears throat> this is the next occasion upon which we hear the name Joseph. There are silent years. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. And there are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock of his brethren, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father the evil report now Israel loved Jacob, Joseph, more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age 
and he made him a coat of many colors. And when the brethren saw that their father loved him more than all the brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. So what do we see here? What has this brought us up to? 17 years since the announcement of the birth to, to Rachel, and 17 years of, of not knowing what has taken place. Um, 17 silent years in which the character of Joseph is molded and shaped. 17 years upon which he is fed, because he, obviously he says he's his favorite, because it was his favorite wife, uh, he gave him the greatest attention uh, that had occurred. And we'll come back to that years later. Secondly, here in verse 2, it says they were the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. Four brothers, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. They were the middle sons of Jacob, in thinking of all of those who were serving there, uh, allowing them to serving, caring for the flocks. Now, how long and how often Joseph was with the brothers, it's not said. I find it doubtful that this is the only occasion upon which he was with the flock, with the brothers, these four brothers. Because I'm sure they took turns. I'm sure there were other responsibilities that were given. And it would seem because as the favorite son, he was one who was uh, not taking a one-time occasion, but uh, he was occasionally going to all of these fields. Do you remember the story of David and Goliath? And here's a time when uh, the sons uh, uh, the, the brothers of, of David were out on the, the forefront of the battle with the, uh, the Philistines, and they were there ready to fight. And it mentions that David's father, Jesse, tells him, take the corn and bread to his brothers in the battlefield. He's at home with Dad, and I'm kind of thinking, perceiving that this is exactly the type of relationship that Joseph had with his father. My sons are out in the fields taking care of the flocks. That was their money. That was their financial investment. That was the, the property that they owned. That was their wealth. And he says, I want you to go out and see what's going on. Not that he was out there lording over them. Not that he was caring for them and, and, and such. But I think he was one who was going out and bringing back a report. Uh, bringing back how things were going with the animals and how the flocks were being taken care of. In any case, Joseph does report to his father, and I'm thinking not just this time, but a number of times. How are the flocks doing? They're doing good. How's your brothers doing? Well, you know, dad, you know, well, maybe sibling rivalry, you know, and, and, and again, and again. It doesn't say it, but I'm taking liberty here and being able to say the accusations were more than once. And they weren't just like jealousy or, you know, poking fun. I think these were honest reports that Joseph gave to his father of the things that were going on. Again in verse 2. And Joseph brought back unto his father the evil report, a bad report. Accusations were being made. Vocal things that were being said. Something was going on, and it wasn't just one time. It wasn't just the one time and things that were being said. <clears throat> what was the report? Well, we don't know the details, but we can get an idea in verses 3 and 4 of the, the smattering of the stuff that was taking place. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than all of his children because he is the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. And when the brethren saw that their father loved him more than all of the brethren, they hated him 
and could not speak peaceably unto him. Favoritism. He was 91 years old. Dad was 91. Now, obviously, we're not talking about 91 of our age. You know, he, they lived, longevity was part of life. But still, 91 years and fathering, you know, uh, these 12 children was no small task. Um, Rachel, her death probably was about 15 years that Joseph was with them uh, from the time of Benjamin. He was probably born, Benjamin was probably born two years after uh, Joseph's birth. So he probably had 15 years where he was there uh, bringing him closer and closer in his relationship to the father. And obviously there was principles of favoritism. I'm sure he loved all of his children. There's not any of us who would say, I love my one child more than my other children. Uh, but the favoritism becomes obvious and infuriates the brothers. The favoritism is given. Look the way he's treated and why I'm not treated the same way. And the text says they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. To put it mildly, they're not on speaking terms. They just, yeah, just stay away. The tension, you could cut it with a knife, the attitude they had. And then the coat. <laughs> the coat. If there was a straw that broke the camel's back, figuratively speaking, it was it. The coat, and this has to be one of the most recognizable items associated with Joseph. Every child who's gone to Sunday school or vacation Bible school has done a coloring of Joseph's coat of many colors, you know. Uh, all displayed in, in every area, all the way to the musical. Uh, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat. Everybody knows the coat of many colors. And it's described in different ways, patchwork or different designs. But it was something that these brothers envied. How come he's got Ralph Lauren? And how come I get Salvation Army thrift store? You know? How come? Dad, you know, Reuben, the oldest of all these, all these brethren, I served you for how many years? And this sapling comes along, and all of a sudden he's getting not only the attention, but we're out there working away, and he's done nothing but just going out, and, which he wasn't, but spying on us. And so the tension continues to grow. The brothers had worked for their father, not only with the flocks, but no doubt there was grain to be bought and purchased, other things that were coming along, and this young boy in a princely robe. And that was the design of it. It was something special, not just for ordinary shepherds. You talk about sibling rivalry. <laughs> this beats it all. Now, verse 5 through 11, if you would look here. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Hear, I pray you, this dream which I have dreamed. For, behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose, and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood around, and made obeisance unto my sheaf. And his brethren said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, 
or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream. And he told his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed bow down thyselves on bow down ourselves to thee and to the earth? And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. Dreams are often used by God, both Old and New Testament, to reveal direction, to give understanding. Uh, they didn't carry around their little pocket New Testaments or open up their, their, their tablets on the field while they were out there watching the flocks and seeing what the Lord was going to do. He spoke to them oftentimes in dreams, and his father understood that because he frequented that type of revelation too. First dream finds the brothers harvesting grain, and again, nothing unusual, something that they always done. And they would take the grain after it's cut and dried, and they would bind it in order to let it dry even more, and then take it to, the, to a place where they would beat it and to get the chaff off of it. But he talks about these being bundled and how it was understood or how they thought about it. But it was Joseph's bundle sitting in the middle and all these other bundles bowing down to them. Joseph gives no interpretation. But bound within their own hearts, this is how they saw it. This is how the the, the power struggle comes along. Their interpretation was enhanced, no doubt, by the coat, you know. All of the other things that have gone on. And now he's got this coat. Now he's talking about this dream. And he says, we're bowing down to you, Joseph. You know, this is the things that really set them off. Joseph did nothing. So you're saying that you're going to reign over us? Isn't that right? And they hated him. They hated him. Notice the, the adjectives here describing the attitude, the relationship. They hated him. Yet the more for the dreams. This goes way beyond personal favoritism, doesn't it? <laughs> this, is, this is really pointing out the man. It's amazing how throughout church history, how jealousies rise amongst brethren, jealousies that can produce hatred and more. It's nothing strange, nothing unusual. Remember the final meal, the Passover, with Jesus and the apostles sitting there around the table, sitting with the twelve, and we read, And there was also strife or argument among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. There's Jesus. After spending three years of teaching these people, his favorites, his chosen ones, about all types of attitudes from the heart, and their last thoughts amongst themselves as a group is that they were jealous. Who's going to be the greatest? tight, close-knit band of brothers, apostles, jealousies tear them apart. Jealousy is also a key in our study of the book of James, founded in the New Testament. But thank the Lord that we've eradicated principles of jealousy today, that we can say amongst the brethren, there is not a spark of jealousy that (coughs) exists. I had a hard time saying that one. 
I digress. Get back to Joseph. There was also a second dream. And it doesn't say. Maybe it's the same night. Uh, maybe it was an afternoon siesta, and he gives the dream. Maybe it's another night comes along, or maybe we don't know. Time-wise, it really doesn't matter. But he comes and he presents a second dream unto them, and the dream was a celestial scene. The sun and moon and 11 stars. Well, there are times when we can go out and we can see if there's clouds there. You can count maybe 11 stars, but mostly... If you can see the sun, the moon, you know, the setting and the rising or whatever, you're going to see a whole slew of stars that are out there. And this was one that he presents unto them. If there was any doubt as to what the first dream meant, it's not an issue with this one. They could have come to him and said, hey, Joseph, lay off that spicy goat cheese before you go to bed. These, these dreams are really creating some tension. No, they jumped right in, they assessed the dream as they did with the first, and they presented what their interpretation was. They didn't ask Joseph what he thought, but they all understood. After he tells his brothers the dream, he then goes to tell Dad. And Dad hears it, and the scripture says that he rebukes him. And some people take that as he's angry at him for this, the picture that's being drawn uh, am I, am I, am, am, and your mother? Well, who is his mother? Rachel. Rachel. She's dead. So the assumption is that they were all looked at, all of the wives as mothers, or all of the women who were there, the wives of all of the other brothers who were married and who were there. But nonetheless, it's a picture that he presents unto them and saying, I rebuke you for that. And I don't think he's angry at it. But I think he was saying, look what's happening with your brothers. Look, what's ha- look what you're doing. And, you know, probably doesn't happen with the Everett family, no sibling rivalry, but, you know, having to go say, now, Matthew, stop it, because you know what Jacob's going to do, or you know what Noah's going to do, you know. Rachel, stop that, you know. You know. He's saying, just stop it, because I know they're angry already at you. The reports, the coat, and everything that's gone. Why are you poking the bear? Why are you creating such a situation? So I'm perceiving that that was the particular rebuke that that he presents unto him. It's amazing how these relationships grow. Verse 11, And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. Hence the picture that's being drawn about of him seeing it. You remember the relationship that, that Jacob, Israel, had with the Lord and the growth that he's had all of these years. And he understands that God works through dreams and he, <clears throat> he works in a marvelous way to bring about his purpose. So he's thinking on this. It doesn't make sense right now, but, but maybe God has some other purpose in all of these things. I want to close with a look at the character of Joseph, a young man who is seemingly way matured beyond his days. Now, take a 17-year-old today, and, and I don't think he could, generally speaking, hold up to the responsibilities of a 17-year-old who lived in the Old Testament times. They had to be out there fending for themselves, killing animals, you know, uh, David uh, talked about slaying a bear and a lion, you know, 
uh, being able to use the sling to knock down this giant. Um, be able to fend for yourself and, and take care. Uh, be out on the flocks uh, for uh, day after day after day, night after night. Uh, so I'm not saying that you know, our 17-year-olds can't do that, but I'm saying in some ways Joseph was far more mature. But what comes out of this, this young man is what really amazes me. I think of those years between Genesis 30, when we have the announcement of his birth, and Genesis 37.1, when it says he's 17 years old. What was the education he had? How did he get his learning? What was the framework of the growth that came in his life that he had the basics? The, he didn't have all the answers, but he had the basics to be able to say, this is the Lord, and this is the direction that I'm going. And it takes him all the way from chapter 37 through chapter 50, through his whole life. And there's not one bad thing said about him. It didn't mean that he was sinless. But what we were presenting here is that in those silent 17 years, there was a framework of truth that was presented to him that he built his life on. The character of his life, the things that he had done were a result of it. Remember Joseph's early years were <clears throat> heavenly impacted by a dysfunctional family. Can you imagine? Four mamas in the house, in the tent, you know, brothers all over, one sister. Talk about conflicts. And who is going to favor whom? And how is this going to be taken care of? Remember, he had one brother, Benjamin. Ten half-brothers and one half-sister. Dinah was her name, by the, by the way. Again, between these four mothers, what a household. And what Joseph experienced was hardly a result of the early days that he had lived in. I think the jealousies and the hatred displayed by the brothers were no doubt extended by the mamas. You think of those who were giving uh, the, 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 the response of Bilhah and Zilpah and, and Leah. How come, Joseph or Jacob, how come my son gets the short stick? Hey, go out there, tell him, you got to, why is he always, how come he's left behind? How come he didn't get this? How come he didn't get that? And, and moms are like that. They're my children. I bore them. Why is he getting more than mine? Why is he not being cared for like mine? Talk about favoritism, you can only imagine. Our families, and rightly so, have a huge impact on the kind of people we become. Those early years are hugely formative ones in our development. And from Joseph, I can guarantee you that Jacob presented unto him all that he knew and all that he could know. I had just finished a book two years ago. Uh, Joel gave me a little book. It's called Storyworth, and uh, it's a subscription and they send you questions about your background, your life. And you'd have to answer some or all or whatever you do. And after one year, actually, it took me two years, uh, and, and you go and they'll publish the book, and it's a nice piece of material. And so I did it this Christmas and finished and gave it to the boys. But I wanted them to understand, and the grandchildren, to understand my background. You know? And some of the questions were, you know, who are the people that had the most influence on you? What did you learn from this? What about this relationship? What about this and so forth? Our, our years are formulated by a lot, by the people, the horizontal relationships that we have here. And I think 
Israel, I think uh, Jacob saw that, and what formulated in Jacob's life was God. What gave him his greatest impact, and, and again, we can't go into all of the things about Jacob, but it was his relationship with the Lord. I know he talked about the covenant that came to him, what God had promised him. He, let, let's go back to Grandpa, okay? He promised to Abraham, and I will make unto thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curse thee. And in thee, Abraham, shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. I think, I think Abraham was convinced of that, that he bore that truth to his son Isaac, and he bore that truth to his son Jacob, and I think Jacob bore that truth to Joseph, because he recognized the special relationship that God had given him in that, and that was the instruction. So what about Isaac? The promise to him. And God said to Sarah, thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. The covenant promise of Almighty God given to Abraham, given to Isaac. He says, I'm going to do for all your seed. It's really through Christ. And then the same appears unto Isaac, the son of Jacob, or Jacob's son Isaac. And I, the Lord thy God, the God of Abraham thy father, and the God of Isaac, and the land wherein thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed, and thy seed shall be the dust of the earth, and shall spread across abroad into the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee, in thy seed, shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and I will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and I will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done all which I have spoken unto thee. That's Jacob, that's Israel, the promise given to him. Now what was he going to tell Joseph about this God? I think he gave him the promise, not only the covenant promise of truth, but I believe he taught all that was filling his heart about the covenant-keeping God. Not only the words of the covenant, but his experiences. You look at the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and all of the things that they've done, and the failures and, and the rescuings of God that he had provided for him. This is the framework upon which Joseph's life was built in those 17 years. Therefore, he could stand and listen to the stuff that was going on, but he says, no, this is how I will live. I believe Joseph's heart was filled with these truths. Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. A truth that goes on both sides of the fence. Train up a child in the ways of the world, and you won't be surprised when it gets old that he's going to act like the world and sound like the world and deal with the world. Because that's the way he was trained. But train up a child in the ways of the Lord, and by the grace of God, that child will live as a child following the Lord. It is his covenant promise. Train up a child. What did Amram and Jochebed teach Moses? 
short period of time, not 17 years, you know, she goes and she puts the babe in the basket, in the reed basket, and he goes down the river and he's picked up by the, 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 the daughter of Pharaoh. And he says, well, we need somebody to take care of. And, you know, oh, we'll find a mama. And so there's, there's Jacobib. And she takes the babe home. And she trains him. And I think she trained him in the covenant-keeping God. How about Hannah and Samuel? Remember them? Remember Hannah? without a child, and she wept. She gets to the temple, and, and Eli sees her, and he said, what are you drunk here for? Well, I'm not drunk, I'm just praying to God to give me a child. And, and he will, and he says, if he gives me a child, I'm going to bring him to the Lord, and she does. It becomes Samuel. We jump a New Testament example of Lois and Eunice. Paul writes of the relationship. Paul says, I see the faith in you, Timothy. And he says, it was first found in your grandmother and in your mother. And I'm convinced it's found in you. The training and the direction was given in Joseph's life, built the foundation of truths that he was able to live and live as he did. The end result is seen in the way Joseph responds to each and every situation and the events that he was privileged to be experiencing from Genesis 37 through Genesis 50. Joseph did not know what the next day would bring, but he did know the one who is in control of tomorrow. From, from the highest of high points to the lowest of low situations, from, from being a favorite son to being a, 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 a pauper in prison to being the prince of Egypt, all because of his faithfulness to his God. I found a verse in Psalms that I think Joseph would highly recommend. For this God is our God forever and ever, and he will be our guide even until the death. He is our God forever and ever. And he guided Joseph, even to the point of death. And, and he said, well, you know, this is, we're going to put his body there, but I have the promise of God that, that Israel is going to come back to the land. We read the promise. He wasn't going to be left in Egypt. They brought him back. And so the promise of God was there. We begin a new year, we have, again, no clue about tomorrow. You know? Oh, it's going to be a giant snowstorm. You know, we're looking, what are you going to do? You know, and, and we had some rain. You know, we're going to, didn't even know that. You know? Oh, the ravens are going to beat the Steelers. You know? No, no, they didn't, they didn't do that. You know? But we have no idea about the things. But we do know the one who controls. He says, he is our, my God forever and ever. He will be my guide. Allow him to be your guide. It's, it's bound within his pages. He says, read the maps. Open it up. You know, Flip on and, and, and go in there and see what he said, what he's promised. All of the delight that is there. That takes us into the new year. That takes us into 2024. 25, 26, who knows until Jesus returns or until he calls us home. Let's pray. So, Father, we pause at the end of this quick prelude of, of the life of this young man and how remarkable it is to read of his exploits. And we can at times feel very close to him as a there are situations that he experienced that we could say, those are like my life. Uh, a dysfunctional family, the hatred of, 
of those we live around or work with or whatever, uh, people who simply don't understand you, uh, Father, and, and he being your representative. And the cloud still becomes even darker, and yet we read of no loss of hope. We read of no cries of, of despair, but one who purposed within his heart to live as a, a child of the sovereign God who rules over all things. Father, grant us such access, uh, understanding, um, the ability to be confident in who you are in your plan for our life. Help us not to run ahead or lag behind, but to walk with you and such. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.